You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The second reading is from the New Testament, which is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah, and good morning, everyone. If you haven't met me, my name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here. As we get into God's word, how about we pray? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you breathed uh, your word out. So we ask that we might uh, receive that and learn from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those words, uh, we read them today. For the Jews, they were called the Shema. And they were probably the most well-known and important verses in the whole Old Testament. A faithful Jew would have recited these words every day, once in the morning at least as they got up, and then once in the evening before they went to bed. And that was because they, they would bookend their days like this, because it was supposed to fill everything in between. The Shema was essentially a vision statement, something to, to guide them, a motto for their lives. And so it was to be in their hearts, deeply ingrained in their being shaping their will and every action. This was to give them meaning and purpose in their lives. You see, the Shema is all about being a faithful servant of God, loving Him and loving others, fulfilling the law. And so they were to make these words part of their everyday lives. You shall teach them diligently to your children, verse 7. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So basically all the time you should be talking about this stuff. 
And then you should even make it visible to you. It should be up on the, uh, the entrance of your houses. It should be almost tattooed to your body, perhaps. That's because these words were to shape everything, how, uh, everything in their lives. This was, you might call, uh, spiritual disciplines, or what we're going to call today a rule of life. That's the topic for today. Last week, we began our new series, The Vine, The Trellis, and The Crow, and we set out with the big idea that's driving this whole thing, that Jesus is the true vine, and if we are connected to him, we will produce fruit. So we all want a life of meaning and purpose, a well-lived life, a fruitful life, and Jesus is the secret to that. John 15, I am the vine, says Jesus, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, from apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we saw that the fruit, the fruit that he's talking about is ultimately us becoming like him. Humanity was made in the image and likeness of God. And, and when we're connected to him, when we're living with him, then we start to resemble him. This change and transformation occurs within us as God lives within us. So just as the life of the vine floods through into the branches, giving it fruit, so the life of the Spirit, life of Jesus comes into us and so we start to produce fruit. We start to look like Him. But we also saw that we can only do this if we abide in Him, if we stay connected to Him. See, there are forces that are eager to draw us away from Him, what you might call the crows of this world. In the parable of the sower, uh, Jesus tells this story about the birds that take away the seeds that the sower uh, leaves out there on the ground. And so in the same way, he says that the devil is trying to stop us. He'll try to take away the seeds that God plants in our lives. He'll try to prevent us from producing fruit. He'll distract us with the world and draw us away from God, or he'll discourage us with condemnation or disappointment. And so I suggested that one of the things that we need to do is to set up a trellis, a structure for You see, to, to protect the vine and to help it grow, you need to give it some shape. This is what the vine wants. The vine will send out feelers looking for something to hold on to. And once it's found that, it will, it will start to grow. It will produce fruit. And so in the same way, we need a trellis for our spiritual vine, a structure that will help us foster growth and abide in Christ. As William Barclay puts it, we must keep contact with Jesus. We cannot do that unless we deliberately take steps to do it. And this will mean arranging our life in such a way that there's never a day when we give ourselves a chance to forget him. And really, what we're talking about here is what we could call a rule of life. You might not have heard that term before, but it actually has a very long history. It came into the language of Christianity as early as the third century uh, with some guys called the Desert Fathers. The most well-known advocate for it, though, is a guy called St. Benedict, who recruited a community of monks 15 centuries ago who gathered around a set of habits that defined the rhythm of their daily life. Put simply, a rule of life, says Marjorie Thompson, is a pattern of spiritual disciplines that provide structure and direction for growth in holiness. Or as our own Guy Mason describes it, it's a conscious, intentional plan that includes rhythms and practices to keep Jesus at the centre of everything. It's structuring your life around Jesus. It's a way of life to make us designed to make us more aware of his presence, reminded of his love, 
and then to help us grow more and more like him. It, it consists of disciplines and habits, but this is far more than just a set of habits. It's not just a checklist. The focus is not on what you do, but on who you become as you do those things. And so when you're developing a rule of life, you set yourself a goal and then you work back from that, thinking through the habits that will help you reach that goal. As Jerry Lineman puts it, the rule is a way to begin with the end in mind, to envision a sustainable, thriving walk with the Lord in his word, in prayer, in community, in our family, in our work, then work backwards to a set of commitments. It's not about detailed to-do lists that burden the believer, but it instead gives the Christian the opportunity to prayerfully seek God's presence and organise your life in a manner that will be conducive for spiritual formation and depth in him. There's a lot of words there. Make sure you check out the sermon notes on our website. You'll get all those quotes. Basically, the goal is we're setting ourselves a goal of how we want to live and then we're working back from that. I mean, that's what we do with other areas of our life, don't we? If you want to lose weight and become a healthier person, you start with that goal and you work backwards with the habits that will help you to do that. Don't eat after dinner or exercise 45 minutes a day. As you can see, this is clearly what I do. Uh, or if you, want to, if you want to become a house owner, you start with the target goal of your deposit, then work out the financial habits that will get you there. You know, bring your lunch to work. Don't have fish and chips more than once a month. There seems to be a bit of a theme here. Uh, <laughs> And so it's the same with our spiritual goals. We make a resolution, a fixed intention, and then we build our lives around fulfilling that intention. So perhaps you want to be a man of God or, or a woman of God. That's your goal. And then you develop a set of rhythms that will help you grow towards that. So you, maybe you, you aim to read a, one book a year on biblical femininity or masculinity. Perhaps you decide you're going to get a mentor, someone that you see as representative of the kind of man or woman that you want to be. Or maybe you would like to be a missionary overseas and serve God in that way. That's, that's your goal. And so now you structure your life towards that. Perhaps you go on a short-term mission trip every couple of years or you uh, open up your home to non-Christian friends once a week. Whatever it is, you're working towards this goal. Ultimately, as God's people... We want to become more godly. We want to become like Jesus himself. As we saw last week, that is God's plan for us. Romans 8, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed into this same image from one degree of glory to another. That, that's the process. That's what happens. That's what fills the Christian life. We become more and more like him. And so we structure our lives around that goal, thinking of all of the things that will help us develop in this way. That's what this series is all about. How do we grow spiritually? How do we become more like Jesus? And so that's why we're seeking to develop this rule of life. But when I say the word disciplines, spiritual disciplines, or a rule of life, I'm anticipating a variety of responses. Some of you will just love this and embrace it straight away. You enjoy discipline. You're a disciplined person. Your calendar is tweaked out. If you like budgeting your finances, you've read that book, Atomic Habits. You love Christmas because it means you're going to get to write out your New Year's resolutions. So this is your jam. 
You, you know the value of disciplines and so you want to embrace spiritual disciplines. If so, all power to you. That love of discipline is a God-given thing, so use it. What I would encourage you, though, is to press a little harder during this series. If you've already got some spiritual disciplines, try some new things. Perhaps, for instance, you could uh, start reading from the prayer book or the Valley of Vision as a way of structuring your prayer life. Perhaps also you could think about a different aspect of your life. Maybe, for instance, you've never really thought about how do you worship God in your rest or how do you uh, enjoy sport in a spiritual way. This is a chance for you to develop rhythms around that. And I also want to make sure that you're focusing not on just the habits but the goal. So we don't serve the habits, the habits serve us. Remember that this is all about who we are becoming. Don't just get fixated on checking off your list of things. Others of you, though, will not warm to the concept of disciplines or a rule of life because perhaps you feel a bit intimidated by it. It sounds overwhelming. Or you feel like it could produce something a bit inauthentic. I mean, you, you don't like your life to be too structured. That's how you live. You don't plan out your day rigidly. You just follow how you're feeling and what needs to be done next. And it works for you. You get the job done. Your desk might be messy, but you can find stuff on there. It's the same with your spirituality. Perhaps you don't approach it in a super structured way. You're not just kind of going through a systematic reading of the Bible. Perhaps you open up the Bible and you just see what God has for you to say. And you actually worry that a discipline could become a bit inauthentic. Now, we're called to love God, and surely love is an instinctive thing. So, so is it uh, superficial? Is it not real if we just put a discipline around it? I can understand that. But might I suggest to you that you probably have more structure in your life than you realise. So we all have a rule of life, a way of living, even if we don't realise it. Just think about how you start your day. Like what's the first thing you do as you wake up? You probably check your phone, check the soccer scores from last night or check Facebook, whatever it is. Perhaps you don't feel fully human until you've had your coffee or you've brushed your teeth. That's how you need. That's, that's your rule of life. That's how you become you. And there's lots of other little things that you might do without realising it. Every time you're in a queue, what do you do? You probably check your phone. Uh, when you put the kids to bed, maybe you just watch TV for an hour. That's just what you do. It just always happens. These are your habits. These are the rhythms of your life. It's your rule of life. And that's fine. There might be plenty of good things in there. But what we need to understand is that these habits are forming us. They're shaping who we are. These are how you become you. I was reading a book this week by a guy called Justin Early, uh, an American guy who found his life was just spiralling out of control. He was exhausted, he had mood swings, panic attacks. And in the midst of this, he realised that it was partly because he'd been following an American rule of life. He was ambitious, he was constantly busy, he had a chaotic, packed schedule. He says, I was saying yes to everything and no to nothing. And ultimately, it had broken him. And he realised that this kind of thing is happening to us all quite unconsciously. He writes, as far as our habits go, the invisible reality is this. We are all living according to a specific regimen of habits and those habits shape most of our life. 
the most alarming thing he says is not our bad habits, which we tend to know about, it's our collective assimilation, which is invisible to us. See, by ignoring the ways that we've been shaped by our habits, we're assimilated to a hidden rule of life, the American rule of life, a, a rigorous program of habits that forms us in the anxiety, depression, consumerism, injustice, vanity, that are so typical of contemporary life. Now, much of what is true about America is no doubt true here as well in Australia. The rhythms and the habits of our lives are forming us unconsciously. It's happening around us. I mean, just think about how disorienting it is when there's a power blackout or you don't have Wi-Fi. Like you realise just how utterly dependent on technology for entertainment, for information, everything, it has totally shaped you. And it might be fine, but we have to recognise that our lives are being shaped all around us. If you're a parent, do you feel guilty if your kids aren't doing stuff every night? They're not playing an instrument, playing a sport. That's because the habits around us have shaped us. Or we might mindlessly just be pursuing a consumer lifestyle. We just It's drummed into us that we're supposed to get a better car and a bigger house, and so we give our lives to doing those things. These are the habits that are all around us. And we have to acknowledge them, to recognise them. They're shaping us. They create who we are. And so I think as Christians, we need to intervene. We want to become not just like the rest of the world. We don't want to be just discipled and become everything else. We want to become Christ-like. So we have to kind of intervene and think through what will that take? What will it look like for us to become Christ-like? So there's a couple of responses that people might have, but there's another one that I really want to address. Now, that is that the, the whole idea of disciplines or a rule of life might make us feel uneasy because you worry that it could undermine the gospel message of grace. See, the Christian gospel is all about grace, the unmerited favour of God. We're accepted by God, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. That's what we trust in. Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. You know, we, we trust what Jesus has done for us. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But this is the, the distinctive uh, element of Christianity, grace. No other religion has it. In every other religion, you have to earn your way to God or earn uh, things, points from him to secure your place with him. The radical uh, difference in Christianity is that it is all given to us, that we just receive it through Jesus. Now, they're so radical that we find it hard to believe. And so as humans, we often default to something else. Out of either fear or pride, we try to earn our way with God. And so when we look at a program like this, we can totally see how our heart might attach itself to this. Already we assess ourselves by our spiritual disciplines, right? You, you already do this. If you've prayed and you've read the Bible, you feel better about yourself, don't you? And if you don't, you feel worse about yourself. When the reality is that because of what Jesus has done, God sees you the same either way. And so you're worried that if we embrace a rule of life like this, it's just going to play into that heart of ours, like i got a mate who, who rates himself out of 10 every week in terms of how he's growing. To me, that just I couldn't do that. That would just be so discouraging or it would just make me totally focus on me rather than on Jesus. 
So what are we to make of this? See, I understand these kinds of reservations because I've been thinking about them quite a lot in preparing for this series because it's what I default to. What I would say, though, is I think the rule of life is a biblical thing. See, what happened in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. God was giving them a rule of life. But it's also a very helpful thing because God calls us to pursue godliness. See, there's actually a lot in the Bible about this. If we want to see change in our life, we need to pursue it. Just take 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. It's a helpful word, isn't it? Train. I just think about uh, an elite sportsman training for the Olympics because there's no Commonwealth Games anymore. Uh, everything that they're doing is geared towards success. They plan out their schedule. They think through their diet. There's effort. There's intention. They pursue excellence. And it should be the same with our pursuit of godliness. As David Mathis explains, Paul is saying here to Timothy, discipline yourself for growth. Take regular action to get more of God in your mind and your heart and echo his ways in your life, which will make you increasingly like him. Now, this is what uh, theologians call sanctification. If you haven't heard that term before, it's a fancy theological term, which basically describes the process of becoming holy, becoming like God. Uh, from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. So sanctification is kind of holification, if that makes sense, if you could say that. Another way to talk about it, says David Mathis, is uh, it's a big word for the little-by-little little progress of the everyday Christian life. That's what we're called to do, to grow more and more like Jesus. But at no stage does this compromise the gospel of grace. In fact, it is the gospel we're not saved by this sanctification. The sanctification is part of our salvation. What I mean is we could easily have a very limited view of salvation. We might think of salvation as just salvation from hell. You know, we recognise that God's judgment is there against our sin, so we need our sins to be forgiven, and then we have an eternal inheritance of heaven. That's vital. I mean, obviously we'd be doomed without it, but it's really just the beginning. You see, Jesus came to save us not just from the penalty for our sin, but from the power of our sin. He died to give us new life, a new life that we live with him, becoming like him. And so really God is inviting us to, to he's got all of this grace ready to go for us, ready to pour out on us, and he's inviting us to grab a hold of it. Dallas Willard talks about the difference between earning and effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We can't earn God's grace, but we can pursue it. And with effort, we will receive more and more of it. I think the verses we read out in 2 Peter give us a clue of how to do these things. You see in verse 8 that he says, you don't want to become ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should make every effort, verse 5, to grow. Supplement faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness and so on. Paul's, uh, Peter's point is clear, says Douglas Moo. 
Spiritual growth is not a matter that Christians can treat lightly. It is a goal which we need to give ourselves body and soul every day of our lives. Or as D.A. Carson says, no one drifts towards holiness. You have to choose it. You have to pursue it. You have to fix your eyes on it and go for it. But what's amazing, as we see here in 2 Peter, is that all of this comes from God too. Verse 3, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what happens is God saves us from sin and then he gives us new grace so that we pursue new life. All of it is his grace to us. As Paul says in Philippians 2, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even the effort of pursuing him is God's grace. I hope that makes sense. Basically what I want to say is a rule of life is a way of us pursuing more and more of God's grace for us. Someone I've found very helpful on this is a guy called David Mathis. He's got a fantastic book called Habits of Grace. You can find it online. I'll put a link in the bottom of the sermon notes. His book is all about spiritual disciplines, like reading the Bible and you know all of the stuff that we've talked about as an important trellis. But I love that he calls them Habits of Grace. Because he's saying this is not about earning God's blessing, but receiving it by putting ourselves in the pathway of God's grace. He says, God has revealed certain channels through which he regularly pours out his favour. And we can routinely avail ourselves of these revealed paths of blessing or neglect them to our detriment. And he says, the more effort that we give to this, the more grace we'll receive. We cannot earn God's grace or make it flow apart from his free gift, he says, but we can position ourselves to go on getting as he keeps on giving. And I think a rule of life will help us to do that. That's what I really want to encourage us to pursue over these seven weeks. That's the material that we've produced that will help you guide through that, guide you through that process of developing a rule of life that will help you receive more and more of God's grace. But today I wanted to give you a few uh, suggestions about how to build it as well. And the first thing is be clear on your goal. As I said before, this is not just about habits. It's about habits with a purpose. It's about who we are becoming. So who do you want to become? What kind of person do you want to come? Perhaps you want to grow in faith. You want to enjoy God more. You want to be a better husband, a better father, a better wife, a better mother, a better friend, whatever it is. Set that goal. Now, ultimately, we want to become like Jesus himself. So set your life around that. And if that's the case, surely the best way for us to do that, the best way for us to live like Christ is to live how Christ lived, right? Dallas Willard says, if we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knows how to live. So if we follow the way he lives, if we study the way he reads the word and he prays and he spends time alone and with other people, if we follow the way he lives, then we will start to learn how to live. We'll start to learn from him. So I would suggest that over this series, Pick out one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, and read it. Read it closely. 
Read it slowly. Maybe just read a paragraph a day. And then reflect on it deeply. What do I see about Jesus in this story? How does he treat other people? Where does he get to be like this? How do I access that myself? What would it be like for me to do the same? You see, we're so familiar with the stories about Jesus that we we probably gloss over most of them. We miss what's really there. So slow down and go deep. Really get to know him so that you can love him. Just to give you a, a, a little example, one of the very first people, perhaps even the first person that Jesus heals, is Peter's mother-in-law. We read the story in Luke 4. I remember reading this story a few years ago and thinking, huh, this is so interesting. Like Peter is going to walk along with Jesus for the whole of his ministry and he's going to see thousands of strangers healed. But before all of that, Jesus shows him that he will heal someone close to him, someone that he loves, someone that he cares about. Jesus wanted him to know the greatness of his power, but also the intimacy of his power. And so I I look at this and think, wow, isn't that wonderful of Jesus? And then I think, okay, well, how can I learn from this? Well, first of all, I should probably look after my (laughs) mother-in-law. That's one thing. But it's more than that. It's making sure that I'm caring for the people close to me. So in my specific example, I'm a pastor. I need to pastor the whole church, but I also need to make sure that I'm pastoring those close to me, my family. That's what I learned from this story. That's how I'm trying to become more like Jesus. So start with the goal. Work that out. Be clear on how you're trying to become like Jesus and then study him. And then as you're developing this rule of life, start really simple. See, I think this thing can feel very abstract and a bit overwhelming. Uh, We've been talking about it for several months as a staff team. It was actually only this week that I properly was writing down, starting to write down my own rule of life. I think sometimes we get a bit intimidated by it. We feel like we have to get everything in it or we start too big. We just need to start simple. Perhaps you can just write down one thing that you already feel is important. Perhaps it's a goal that you have subconsciously. Perhaps you want to be a loving parent. Now just add something to that. Think about the habits that you've already got, what's helping towards that, like reading the Bible, and what might be hindering that. Just identify those things, then try to take a first step. Perhaps you can build a rhythm of reading a psalm every day. Perhaps you can uh, read a book that will help you towards your goal. Just start simple. But then thirdly, as you go, expand it into every area of your life. See, Christ's lordship extends to everything and he can transform every part of us. So we need to open up every part of our lives to him. Think about your relationships. How can you be a better son, brother, husband, friend, whatever it is, parent? Think about all of these things and then commit to that. Or think about your work. The average Australian works almost 2,000 hours a year, 80,000 hours over the course of their lifetime. That's a lot of time. So how can you use that time well? Have you considered about how you worship God in and through your work? Maybe you can consider Jesus, the great honourable carpenter, and how he works. And how can we mimic him? 
And then just try stuff out. Just try it. You don't have to be locked in. When you write something down that's not there for the next 50 years, you can have flexibility. Maybe you can review it every month or so. Add something that works, take away something that's not working. You don't serve the habits, the habits serve you. Then fourthly, build with the core habits. We're going to go through a bunch of helpful things over the coming weeks, but there are three that I think are core to everything else. Scripture, prayer, and fellowship with God's people. These are essential for everything. Whatever you want to become, you will become more like that if you do these things, these things, because this is where God promises to give his grace. And I like how Mathis describes these as hearing God's voice, having his ear, and belonging to his body. So why don't we spend a bit of time on each of them? First of all, think about hearing God's voice in the word. Make a regular pattern of hearing God's voice through his word. I mean, this is an obvious one, but I can't overstate its importance. See, our our world is filled with a million voices discipling us and telling us how to live what we should want. And if we don't hear God's voice in the middle of that, we will be led astray. It's just going to happen. We have to acknowledge that. But if we listen to God's word, then we will be shaped by him. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. God speaks these words. So when you open the Bible, when you listen to a podcast or whatever it is, know that God is speaking again, afresh to you. That's what's happening. I read this beautiful thing from Mathis. What happens is when we open God's word, God genuinely is speaking to us. He writes, the Bible is no magic book, but a strange power stirs when we reach for the scriptures. Something influential, though invisible, is happening as we hear God's words read or spoken and when we read or study. Something supernatural transpires as we see the text in front of us and take it into our souls. Someone unseen moves the Holy Spirit. So when we get alone with the Bible, we are not alone. God has not left us to ourselves to understand his word and feed our own souls. No matter how thin your training, no matter how spotty your routine, the helper, that's what Jesus called the spirit, the helper stands ready. That's what's happening. The spirit is there ready to speak, to change. All scripture is breathed out by God and so it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God can and will change us as his spirit goes to work through the word. So read it and then hold it there as long as you can. I love Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Like like let it marinate. So as you read the Bible, you know, maybe read it again a second time. Perhaps you can grab a commentary to read alongside it. Some of them are really academic and terrible, but like if you're looking for something that's really readable and inspirational, just come and talk to me. I'll suggest some for you. Maybe you can try a sermon podcast. Sometimes I'll listen to Tim Keller. There's a whole bunch of other preachers around City on a Hill you can listen to. Something that I've just been starting to do more is deliberately meditating 
on God's words. Sort of writing down just a, a phrase or a verse that I've read that grabs me, that jumps out at me, and then trying to mull on that for a few minutes as a bridge between my Bible reading and my prayer. See, Christian meditation is the opposite to meditation in Eastern religions. In other religions, the goal is to empty your mind, but in Christian meditation, we fill our mind with the thoughts of God. So try it this week. Something else I'm keen to start doing is memorising scripture. I mean, I can remember a whole stack of phrases, but I find it hard to just think of the specific verses, but I want to change that. As Matthew says, when we memorise lines from the Bible, we are shaping our minds in the moment to mimic the structure and mindset of the mind of God. So if you want the mind of God, fill it with the mind of God. Fill your mind with his words. So we hear God's verse, uh, voice and then we have God's ear in prayer. This is the incredible thing of Christianity. We get to speak to our creator. That's what we have now, prayer is not just a habit, it's actually a constant practice. We're called in 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always on our knees praying, but we are called to live with him. I like to think of it as a bit, a bit like you might think about your conversations with someone close to you, a good friend perhaps or a spouse. When someone's close to you, you have a mix of companionship and conversation, don't you? Like, it would be weird if I said to my wife, look, we're going to talk at 9am for 45 minutes and we're not going to talk the rest of the day. Like, that would be weird. But it would also not be helpful if we just had that vague kind of companionship and we were just talking just as life went on. There are times where we need to sit down face to face and talk. So it is with God. We work on both of these things. We have the companionship throughout the day, noticing him, and then there are times where we sit down and we really talk to him. So work on both of these things. Work on the companionship, how you live with God. Start thanking him for the blessings that you notice during the day. Ask him for the right words when you're talking to someone. Confess your sin. Maybe you have a lustful thought or a greedy thought. Confess that on the spot. And then think about how you can make the most of spending focus time with him. Maybe you can block out some time every day, go for a prayer walk, journal your prayers, whatever it is. Think about the wonder of praying and find new ways to embrace it. And then thirdly, we belong to God's body. We have fellowship with God's people. See, I focus a lot on how the rule of life can help us as individuals. But we also need to do this together because that's our identity. That's who God has made us to be. The church is the body of Christ. That's how Paul describes it. 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And there is this profound reality that we have. We are connected to each other and in some way we embody God's work in the world. That's what we're called to. So your identity now as one of God's people is a shared one. Yes, you are an individual saved by Jesus, but you are also connected to all of God's people. Perhaps marriage is a, 
a helpful picture of this. Uh, whenever I give a wedding sermon, there's a line where I talk about how um, whenever someone gets married, they're connected. They're still individuals, but they're also a couple. So they have a shared identity. One plus one equals one. In the same way, when you become a Christian, you're becoming part of something bigger than yourself. One plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one equals one. We are individuals, but we are part of the people of God. We are the body of Christ. As Thomas R. Kelly writes, we know that these souls around us are with us. It is as if the boundaries of our own self were enlarged, as if we were within them and as if they were within us. That's what we're supposed to realise. And that's what we experience when we come together as God's people. So we need to uh, prioritise this. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. You see, you need us and we need you. You need us because you need to be uh, reminded of who you are. I remember uh, before I worked at City on a Hill, I was working in a secular bookshop, going to church every Sunday night. Uh, the place I worked in was a lovely place. There's actually some other Christians there. But I was finding it really hard to feel connected to God, to feel like my faith meant something. You know, all around me, I'm hearing all of these words about uh, the priority of money or something like that. And it was easy to imagine that my faith didn't matter. No one else not, not, not many other people around me shared it. The world around me was telling me it was silly and irrelevant. And that's what you're experiencing as you go to work every Sunday. And so it was every week. It was tempting then to avoid church. I didn't feel connected to God, so why would I go to church? But I did keep going. And I remember that every time I went, I was so relieved. So just walking up the stairs, walking into church, seeing God's people, I felt connected to God and to the body of Christ. That's what happens when we come together. We see other people who share the same faith, who are part of who we are, and we are part of who they are. So don't neglect this. You need us. And we need you. We're told here to stir one and up, stir up one another to love and good works, to encourage one another. We are part of this body, and the Spirit has given us uh, things that we can use for the common good. And unless we bring those things, then the whole thing won't grow. Ephesians 4, the body is joined together, but only when each part is working properly does the body grow properly and builds itself up in love. So you need us to grow and we need you to grow together. We all need each other. And so we need to commit to it, commit to each other. And finally, as we finish, I want to remind us that all of this stuff, all of this rule of life stuff is ultimately a rule for life. This is the glory of the Christian message. In John 10, Jesus said that he came so that we may have life and have it abundantly. And ultimately, this is what this is all about. 
the God who made us, made us so that we could live, we could have joy and purpose, a fruitful life. Sin has disrupted that, but by his mercy and his grace, we can have it once more through Jesus, with Jesus. So trust him, commit to him, pursue him. Let's find our life in him and with him. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for your love for us and your desire for us to live and to have life abundant. Lord, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to think through that, what it looks like practically for us. We ask that you might uh, guide and direct us as we think through a rule of life, a rule for life. Lord, I pray that uh, we won't be lazy in this, but I also pray that we won't uh, find our identity in this, as if we can earn your favour somehow. Lord, we ask that whatever we do, we might be drawn to your grace, that we might develop habits of grace, that we might put ourselves in the way of your goodness. Thank you that this is how you work, that the more we seek you, the more we have of you, that you're a God who loves to give and to keep giving. And so we commit to receiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.